0: Good morning, brothers and sisters and friends of the truth. want we'll to get started on our second class, our exposition or doctrine class this morning. I must say I feel a little better this morning. Uh, for one reason, I have my laptop right here next to me, and we're not depending on the remote uh, part of the technology. I do want to thank Brother Art for his assistance yesterday. I know he can sympathize with me, as I recall, <laughs> in Richmond. Had a little glitch as well, and that's when you rely on man-made things, that's what happens. The other reason I feel a little better this morning is that a number of you come up to me and say, yes, I, I agree with what, we, what you presented yesterday. In fact, I think the sisters in the Little Rock have been reviewing this as part of their gospel study and, and came to the same conclusion. So there, I don't have any bruises from any stones being thrown, so that's, that's a good thing. So yesterday, we presented evidence near the end of the class that the Last Supper took place... In fact, the day before the Jewish Passover feast, and the Christ did not partake of the Paschal Lamb at that meal, the Last Supper, with his apostles. And we believe this is a possibility, certainly, in and in in uh, the fulfillment of the type that is so beautiful concerning Christ as the Lamb. And so we propose that he was the lamb as he instituted what we considered and what we presented as the new Passover. So again, the Last Supper would have then taken place on the day of preparation, with his crucifixion being coincident with the slaying of the lambs in the temple on this day of preparation, and fulfillment again of the type as Christ our Passover. We concluded yesterday with this chronology that we'll review just briefly. And I put the the times of the day, our twenty-four-hour day on there, and it may have confused you a little yesterday. I, I just said hour, and of course under the of the Jewish day, they refer to the to the hours of the day differently. So at 6 p.m, as we know, that would be the first hour of the Jewish day, in this case the 14th day of Nisan or Abib, the first month of the Jewish year. So we find Peter and John, under the instructions of Jesus, going to make arrangements for the Passover meal, and we proposed soon thereafter that Jesus and the others followed them to the upper room, and the Last Supper was held, again, as we're describing it as a new Passover. Passover. And it was approximately midnight that the arrest took place in the garden, and the trials began, and of course the crucifixion then taking place in the morning of the next calendar day, but still the same 14th day of Nisan or first or, uh, Abib, the first month of the Jewish year, with Jesus dying, approximately 3 p.m. or the ninth ninth hour, and then... The slaying, which would have, again, been the same time as the slaying of the Passover lambs and this burial to follow. And then the 15th day starts, which was the actual Passover Sabbath and the meal eaten by the Jewish people at that time. But yesterday, we kind of left things hanging as far as this apparent conflict between John and the other Gospels. So before we go on, we would like to recap a little more concerning this and discuss this apparent conflict between the Gospels that we mentioned yesterday. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we are told that Jesus intended to keep the Passover with with his disciples. As we just showed on the chronology, as we know from the record, Jesus sent Peter and John to prepare for the Passover, And then Jesus acted as host at that meal that was prepared. As we look at John, though, it's not so simple. As we mentioned yesterday, the placement of the events in his gospel clearly indicate that the Last Supper did not take place on the Passover Sabbath, that is, as we just showed, the 15th day of Abib. Again, we are told, as we read yesterday from the 13th chapter of John, that the meal ended before the Passover feast. Also, that Jesus was already on trial before Pilate when the Jews were still making ready for the celebration. Let's turn there to John. We referenced this verse but didn't read it in John 18 and 28. John chapter 18... Verse 28. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas into the hall of judgment, and it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. So at this point, Jesus is under trial before Pilate, and they didn't want to be defiled because they were going to be eating the Passover. And finally, the crucifixion occurred on the day of preparation, as we find in chapter 19 and verse 31 of John. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So how do the gospel accounts come into harmony? How can we harmonize John with the other Gospels. The chronological problem, the apparent contradiction between the Gospels cannot be settled without looking again at the weight of evidence as we did yesterday, the evidence in all four Gospel accounts. Although the meal described in John 13 does lack the particular features that characterize the Last Supper in the other accounts, there can be no doubt that John is speaking of the same meal in this chapter. This is evidenced by the prediction of Judas' betrayal of him that occurs during the meal described in John 13 and from the position of the meal in relation to Christ's arrest in the garden. We will propose that the differences then between the accounts arise from the different ways of expressing the days of the feast. In fact, the other Gospels, and particularly Mark in chapter 15 and 42, state, as does John, that Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation for the Sabbath. So there's agreement there as far as when the crucifixion took place. John's usage of the day of preparation, as we read in John 19, and let's look at John, while we're there in John, verse 14, it also mentions this day of preparation. John 19.14, and it was the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he saith unto the Jews, behold, your king. So clearly in John, and as we said, even in the other Gospels, there's agreement as to it was the day of preparation when Christ was crucified, but what about the timing of the Last Supper? Some of you may have seen the pamphlet that Brother Alex Briley put together on the crucifixion week in that he has a what I consider an excellent chart of, of the timing of that week. And he contends, after much study, that the key to the resolution of this timing issue can be found in the introductory verses of each of the four gospel accounts. As mentioned, John makes it clear the Last Supper occurred before the Passover, whereas the other gospel writers indicate it was on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, as you see here from Matthew twenty-six and seventeen, Mark fourteen and twelve, and Luke twenty-two verse seven. In fact, Mark and Luke both specifically say it was the day the Passover or the Passover lamb was killed. So there's no question that the timing of the other gospels is correct. And they do agree with John. It's just how we put it together. The key is, and this was again from Brother Briley, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were actually referring to the day of preparation as the first day of unleavened bread. In other words, the day of preparation. And John is the same day of preparation as the first day of unleavened bread as expressed in the other Gospels. Now, we know from the law that the day of preparation was when the day when the Jews were to rid their homes of leaven prior to the feast beginning. But by the time of Christ, this day was considered actually to be part of the feast itself. And here is the, the real key. It was also the reason that Mark and Luke mentioned it was the day the Passover lamb was to be killed. So if this is true... All four gospels then agree that the Last Supper took place on the day of preparation or the fourteenth day of Abib, as we showed in our proposed chronology. So in summary on this point, and we don't want to be dogmatic on these things concerning the relatively relative timing of the Last Supper and the celebration of the Passover in that year. But we can say certainly that Jesus celebrated his last meal with his disciples before his hour had come. And this is the institution of our memorial service, our breaking of bread. There is some question, though, whether it was actually a complete Passover meal. And in particular, as we mentioned yesterday, and in particular, if they partook of a Paschal lamb. There is no question There is no question that the offering of this particular sacrifice and its significance to Christ and his sacrifice is of tremendous spiritual importance. The Passover sacrifice was the only one in which the worshiper was personally involved in the slaying of the animal as it was originally instituted in Egypt. When the Jews came together to celebrate the Passover meal, from that time on with a slain lamb before them, They were reminded of the covenant with their God in a very personal way. As we celebrate, as we celebrate this new Passover, the memorial feast each first day, we too are reminded of our covenant with him and that Christ is our Passover, sacrificed for us. The Passover was an occasion, as we know, to the Jewish people, the children of Israel, for looking forward to the future redemption of Israel at the coming of their Messiah. It was also a feast celebrated among families and friends. This emphasized that God's act of redemption was not only for individuals, but involved a nation of people composed of families who love and serve him. So with this background, we are finally ready to look specifically at the institution of the breaking of bread. And of course, we, we turn to the parallel gospel accounts of Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. Now, did everybody get a handout? Another brother, Glenn, caught some of the people in the back on this side that, that uh, did not get them yesterday. So everybody... Has them. Were there any leftover, Brother Glenn? Where are they? Oh, yeah, I think he passed the rest of them out. Uh, is that an, there's some extras? What's that? Oh, okay, there's some extras right here. So, yeah, raise your hand, Brother Glenn. I, there's a couple folks that, that don't have them. On page six of that handout, we want to be looking at page six uh, for a good part of today's class where we have the uh, parallel accounts of the four institution records. There's no corresponding account, account, as we know, of the breaking of bread itself in the Gospel of John. Of course, he alludes to it, particularly in the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. And I had some remarks that would be at the end of this class, but Brother David, in Sunday's exhortation, covered Jesus as the bread of life very well. And so many, many times, as we know in the breaking of bread, that particular section of verses, or John chapter 6, is referred to for good reason. In the case of Paul, we know he received... A revelation from Jesus recorded in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, which is the fourth account. Now, there are two basic questions as we come to the institution accounts that we would like to address. First, what actually happened at the Last Supper, that is, the historical aspect, and more importantly, what is the spiritual or theological significance of what happened, or we might say the doctrinal aspect. Just in a way of background concerning these accounts and the three Gospels and 1 Corinthians in terms of when they were written, many biblical historians believe that the account of Paul in 1 Corinthians may have actually been written before the Gospels. Now, we certainly don't know for sure if that's the case, but that's a possibility. We can pinpoint the timing pretty well. So we know he spent time in Corinth establishing the Ecclesia around A.D. 51, and people believe he wrote the epistle from Rome in A.D. 55. Now it's possible that Matthew and Mark wrote their Gospels just prior or about the same time as Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. This is very possible. Some believe that they wrote them almost 15 years later than 1 Corinthians, which would not be the natural thing you would consider. Now, it's generally agreed that Luke wrote his gospel around 60 A.D. Now, as we compare the accounts, you'll see that there's a certain similarity between Matthew and Mark, and often when they compare them, they pair these or group Matthew and Mark together and compare them against Luke and Paul, which also have some parallels between them. Now, we know there's some. Differences, important differences between the gospel accounts and Paul's in 1 Corinthians. Obviously, the gospels are eyewitness accounts or historical reports of the Last Supper in the context of Christ's ministry and life, and therefore a fuller description of the preparations for and the meal itself as well as the sayings of Jesus about the fact that he will not eat or drink again until the kingdom of God comes. On the other hand, Paul received, as we know, the instructions directly by revelation. So this is an important difference between his account and the Gospels. Therefore, he focuses primarily on the words of institution as given to him by Christ, along with Christ's explanation of the significance of of the emblems. Now, before we look at the accounts, we want to try to frame the setting. I think that's important, to frame the setting, the background of Christ's institution at the breaking of bread, that is the, the physical setting. They were to make preparations in a large upper room that he would show them. It was to be furnished and ready. It is not unreasonable to imagine that the owner of the house was himself a disciple, a follower of Christ. Although during festive seasons, gracious hospitality was extended to everyone as they came to Jerusalem to celebrate. He provided his best room. This may have been unusual, except we keep in mind that Peter and John said, this is at the request Of the master rabbi the Jesus of Nazareth so we find the twelve gathering with the master in the upper chamber the room was furnished this meant that there were cushions arranged around the table except at one end and we'll look at the possible seating arrangement in a moment whether or not Christ actually celebrated the complete Passover meal, the basic elements of the feast were made ready. That is, the cups, the wine, and the wine would have been mixed with water at that particular time, as we'll mention later. Of course, there were cakes of unleavened bread, the dipping dishes with vinegar or charisth sauce that is made of nuts, raisins, apples, and almonds, according to tradition. Speaking of tradition... Unfortunately, most of the paintings, including this one, give us the wrong picture of the scene. Most of the paintings of the Last Supper are inaccurate, as we know. That is according to the real custom of the day. Christ and the Twelve would have been reclining, as we know, on pillows around a low table, each resting on his left hand, leaving the right hand free to eat and drink with. Here we attempt to show a possible seating arrangement around this table. They each have their own cushion, again positioned around three sides. And this open end on, the, on your left would be available for serving. We can imagine that the apostles were seated in a certain order. Jesus was likely seated near the middle so he could preside over the meal as the host in the breaking of bread. From the gospel narratives, we infer that John must have reclined next to Jesus on his right hand. As we are told, he was leaning back on the master's breast. We propose that Judas, that is, reclined on the other side of Jesus. This accounts for why none of the other apostles heard when Christ whispered to John by what sign to recognize the betrayer. It also explains, in particular, how Christ could first hand the sop to Judas, beginning with him as the, quote, chief guest, without causing special notice. Judas also, as we know, had to be seated next to Jesus as he dared to ask if he was the one. And we know he received the affirmative answer without anyone else knowing. Peter, we propose, was seated directly across from John, making it possible for him to easily beckon to John, to ask who the traitor was, as recorded in John 13 and 24. Now, of course, this is all this is somewhat speculation, and we have really no idea where the rest of the apostles would occupy their places, perhaps as convenient or perhaps suited for fellowship one with another. Now, in terms of details of the meal, in Eddersheim, he goes on at some length describing the meal. But it was really according to the customs of the Passover and he admits that we can't be certain to what extent Christ followed the traditions in this last meal with his disciples. As we know, little is recorded about the other aspects of the meal. With the exception of the dipping of the sop and Luke's mentioning of a second cup, we're not told anything of the parts of a Traditional Jewish Passover beyond a formal meal. And we we described what a formal Jewish meal was like yesterday. And it included the elements of prayer and thanksgiving, the bread, and the cup of blessing. However, we can say with some certainty that it did follow the pattern of the meal for which it was made ready. So the solemn service of Christ now went on in the silence of reverent awe, we can be certain. We note the important element of time here as the words of Matthew says, as they were eating, or Mark expresses it as they sat or reclined and did eat. Again, nothing is recorded of the meal itself in the traditional preliminary blessings, thanksgiving and raising of the cups. The record of the three Gospels begins with a mention of the sop. We are told that Jesus, having dipped it in the dish, he handed it first to Judas. And then, as, as recorded in John 13 and 30, let's, let's turn over to John 13 and 30. He, that is Judas, and having received the sop, went immediately out... And it was night. The departure of the betrayer seemed to clear the atmosphere around the table. He was gone to do his work. Some believe that Judas shared the bread based upon the order of Luke's account. Now, as we'll discuss in a moment, we do not believe this was the case. For now, we approach the most solemn part of the meal, the breaking of bread, the institution of the Lord's Supper as a new feast and a new Passover. We now focus our attention on the actual distribution of the bread and cup by Christ and his sayings over them. Here we have listed the very familiar passages in which they occur that are mentioned among us each Sunday morning. One thing to note about these passages is they totally focus focus on what Christ is saying and what Christ is doing. There is no mention in this part of the record concerning other aspects of the meal, again, or what the disciples were doing. It describes exclusively what Jesus did and said on this occasion as the Lamb of God. Here we show the various actual sayings over the bread and wine as recorded in the four accounts. Again, these are shown in your handout. First, of course, was the distribution of the bread. Now we realize, and as you see, as we as you look at the different accounts, there are some differences. For example, we note that Luke is the only account that omits the verb take. He says, "This is my body, which is given for you," without mentioning the word take. The distribution of the bread was introduced by the normal procedure at a Jewish meal, that is, after the giving of thanks and the breaking of it, it was shared with the guests, in this case, the apostles. What is different? Undoubtedly about this meal with the apostles are the sayings over the bread and the cup. This is the most important aspect, as we know. And speaking of that, literally translated, the saying over the bread is simply, this, my body. For the word is is not in the original Aramaic in this case. We also note that Paul's account begins with on the night when he was betrayed and set up as they were eating. Another difference with Paul's account is that he doesn't mention that Jesus gave the bread to the disciples, only that it is broken for you. Now we know the concept of breaking the bread naturally includes certainly the idea that it was distributed. No question. It cannot refer, though, as we know, to the literal breaking of the body of Jesus as he died on the stake. His body, we know, was not literally broken, not even his legs as prophesied, but as was customary, if needed, to accelerate death during crucifixion. So the breaking of bread refers to nothing more than tearing or breaking it apart so that it can be shared among those present. The only other difference is in this breaking of bread or the distribution of the bread is that Matthew and Mark, we note, use the word blessed, while in Luke and Paul it's gave thanks. And we'll mention this a little later in terms of practical aspects of the breaking of bread, but there is no difference actually in the original word for these two verbs. Now turning to the cup... We note, again, some minor differences. Matthew precedes the saying, Would drink ye all of it? And he adds for the remission of sins at the end of his record. Luke records which is shed for you instead of shed for many in Matthew and Mark. And Paul adds the commandment, This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Now we'll leave the sayings there, for the moment, except for one one exception we'll get to. But we will come back to these sayings certainly when we get tomorrow. We'll be talking about the meaning of the emblems and refer again certainly to these sayings. But then we have this mention of the two cups in Luke. Now this might be one that we would like to ignore or pass over, but we need to address. As we know, it, these. Occur in verses 17 and 18, the first one and the second one in verse 20 of Luke 22. It is a unique mention, as we know, of two cups in Luke's account, and it can create a problem for Bible students to explain. The usual approach is to try to relate them, and perhaps this is the case, to the three or perhaps even four cups of the actual Passover ritual. Now, we will attempt to show a different view in reference to Luke's record of the cup or cups of the Last Supper. The memorial bread and wine, as we normally refer to Luke's account, appear to be described in verses 19 and 20. At least that's, in our memorial services how we normally look at it. And that's primarily because the second mention of the cup goes along very well, as you'll notice in the parallel record, to 1 Corinthians 23 and 25. So Luke 22:17 17 and 18 would appear then to relate to another cup. However, the problem is that the words of this first cup parallel very well with the accounts of Matthew and Mark. In fact, that's how we show it in your chart it's in the handout. Is it possible, or at least let's think about the possibility that Luke 22.17 is also about the memorial cup and that these two cups in Luke's account are one and the same, described differently. Now, the problem is the way, the order of the record. Why would Luke organize his record this way if they were the same cup? It could be that in Luke 22, Luke was content, certainly under the authority of Yahweh, to compile the information concerning the Last Supper without it being in strict chronological order. Now, there are other instances in Luke of such, quote, disorder. Now, the accounts are accurate as far as what's presented just out of order. Luke mentions, for example, the contention among the twelve taking place after the bread and wine. Whereas in John 13, the washing of the disciples' feet, that was mentioned in the preceding class, was clearly designed as a rebuke of their altercation at the beginning, before the meal or the feast. Luke 22 and 21 has Jesus saying, after the institution of the breaking of bread... Behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. Now, this would imply, as we mentioned earlier, that Judas actually shared both the bread and wine. Yet, according to the other Gospels, Judas was given the sop while the meal was in progress and went out. And finally, at the end of Luke's account, in verses 31 to 34, we find the warning of Peter. Again, this is after Excuse me, before the departure for Gethsemane, as recorded in verse 39. However, Matthew and Mark have it after Jesus had already left the upper room. So there is some disagreement here between Luke and the other Gospels as to the order of the things written in his account. So we suggest the possibility, again, that Luke was referring to the same cup in the verses that precede verse 19 and the ones that were after it. So, if verse 19 was actually prior to verses 17 and 18, then we would have complete agreement between the Gospels, with the the bread coming first and then the cup. Just something to consider, maybe perhaps looking at the original uh, text and, and looking at it in your own study, but this is something we present as a possibility. Now, there are other minor differences in the accounts. None of them are are critical to our understanding. We can be confident that Jesus first spoke of the bread, gave thanks for it, and shared it with his disciples as representing his body. And then the cup was shared with them and likened to his blood, the blood of the covenant, Or more specifically, we know the new covenant in his blood that Brother Aaron referred to on Sunday morning in our Sunday school presented so so well. So moving on then to the end, end sayings as referred to, these passages related to the emblems end with a very important message of hope and comfort for the future. Of course, referring to the drinking new in the kingdom that is found in each of the gospel accounts. One other difference with Luke we mentioned is that it begins with such a reference where Christ is quoted as saying, I will not eat any any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. All three accounts end after the sharing of the cup with a similar remark that he will not drink of it again until the kingdom comes. There's nothing corresponding to this in Paul's account, in terms of an end saying, that is, in the words of Jesus. However, it ends with the words to the Corinthians that by eating and drinking of the emblems, they proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, there is the one small but perhaps significant difference between Matthew and the other Gospels that we will mention concerning the saying about drinking in the kingdom. Matthew adds the words, with you it seems that jesus is emphasizing the fact that his apostles personally will be with him when he partakes again in the kingdom drinking new and what a message of hope and comfort this would be at this particular time and one for us that we will refer to later The time has come for Jesus to rally his own spiritual strength. He is facing a tremendous ordeal that had to be dwelling on his mind. But he took this short time with his apostles to strengthen them. Now it's time to strengthen himself. His time in Gethsemane would be for that purpose. And so Jesus says, Arise, let us go hence. But before they left the upper room, they sung a hymn. This hymn is often taken to be a portion of the Hillel, which is composed of Psalms 113 to 118 that we mentioned previously. It would be difficult to find any any hymn more appropriate to the Last Supper than the one based on this psalm. We'd like to turn there to Psalm 118 and read it at the closing of our class this morning. Psalm 118, beginning in verse 5. And think of, the, of Christ and the, and the apostles reciting this psalm in the form of a hymn before they left the upper room and went to the garden. Psalm 118, verse 5. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do unto me. The Lord taketh my heart, my part with them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire Upon them that hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations compassed about, but in the name of Yahweh will I destroy them. They compass me about, yea, they compass me about, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They compass me about like bees, they are quenched as the fire of thorns, for in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. Thou hast thrust sore at me that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song and has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous, the right hand of the Lord doeth val- valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord hath chastened me sore, but he hath not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them, and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord is into to which the righteous shall enter. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is before the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, which has showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. Thou art God, and I will praise thee. Thou art my God. I will exalt thee. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. And then they went out to the garden.